Good morning. Good morning. Won't you join me, please, in a word of prayer? Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this continued season of Christmas as we celebrate your incarnation into our life, our world. We thank you for the gift of the baby Jesus, his circumcision, his naming. We thank you, Lord, for the gift and the power of your Holy Spirit and certainly the gift of this new year. We pray that this would be a new beginning in our lives as individuals here at St. Philip and all churches in your kingdom over this earth, in our nation and in our world. Speak to us today as always, Lord, a word of grace, mercy, hope, comfort, consolation, power, anointing, equipping, and reassurance. We are careful to always give you all the honor, glory, and praise that you are due in all things. You are a great God, as the psalmist says, and greatly to be praised. We thank you, Lord, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is indeed the gospel lesson, John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 18. It is the prologue to John's gospel. Uh, my sermon title today is taken from verse number 16. In the gospel narrative, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. The occasion of a new year always brings to mind the opportunities for a new beginning, a fresh start in one's life, however it is that one defines that. It is only natural to want to close certain doors and open others to get beyond or past uncomfortable and painful realities and to embrace new and hopefully more pleasant and joyful experiences. And what better way to do that than by taking down an old calendar and putting up a new one. Every time you hang a new calendar on the wall in January, you have to fasten it, especially securely, since all the pages but one hang on the bottom and therefore threaten to cause the calendar to pull out the thumbtack by which it hangs and falls to the ground. But the weight of all those pages symbolizes all that is to come, the days, the weeks, and the months that have yet to arrive. At this time of the year, everything is new. Even Jesus is still a baby, if not necessarily wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, then at least recently circumcised, according to Luke 2.21, on the eighth day of his life, according to Jewish custom, and finally he is given the name at his circumcision, Jesus. It is only natural, perhaps, at such moments to make what we call New Year's resolutions, normally dealing with physical concerns such as working out, implementing new diets, and losing weight. In such efforts at practical changes in our lives, we often scour the scriptures, searching for biblical counsel on how to be a better spouse or parent, how to better manage our money, lose weight gained over the holidays, de-stress our lives, or any other of a number of practical, relevant measures which really add up more to self-help than anything else. 
And, of course, when we don't find them, we frustratingly deem the Scriptures to be impractical, irrelevant, and just so many fanciful flights of poetry which are boring and too distant to impact our daily existence. We often seem to be concerned with the branches of our lives. What should I do at this particular moment? Which path, which direction should I take? When Scripture seems to be more concerned with the roots of our tree. Godliness, holiness, love, forgiveness, mercy. So when Scripture nourishes the roots of our lives, saturating us with those aforementioned virtues, we can trust that over time the branches will actually take care of themselves and begin to grow and spread out in all the right directions. There is no specific self-help and practical relevance in our scripture lessons for this morning, in other words. Nothing addressing your specific branches, really, but oh, what a diet for your roots. If this new year is an occasion for new beginnings and new resolutions in your life, John, the beloved disciple and author of this gospel bearing his name, gives you something far more valuable than dietary suggestions or advice on your career or love life. Forget the new beginning that is 2021 for a moment. In the very beginning, from time immemorial, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 1 opens up. In the beginning, of course, is a powerful phrase. These are actually the first three words in the entire Bible. In the beginning, Genesis opens up. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over those waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So John's in the beginning here is the New Testament version of Genesis 1, verse 1. And John is very careful here to identify Jesus the Christ of Nazareth as the very Word of God himself. People debate all the time whether Jesus was a mere man or in some sense divine, and if so, how. And people marshal verses to defend their position wherever it might be along that particular spectrum. But John is very clear here that Jesus is the divine pre-existent Word of God, later become incarnate or made flesh. And some of the most beautiful, sublime poetry ever written, my friends. John continues, All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. So we see here that Jesus is the author of creation, the author of all life, everything that we see and behold. What has come into being in him was life, John continues. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness, as the old version says, has not overcome it. The concepts of life and light are prominently associated with Jesus throughout the Gospels. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the bread of life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And in the end of time, in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, there exists the river of life, the tree of life, and the Lamb's book of life. No greater love hath a man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And of course, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me walks not in darkness, but has the light of life. So Jesus is the bestower of both life and light, as opposed to obscurity and death. And so we are called, I think, to examine and reflect upon our beliefs, our relationships, our actions in this world, and ask ourselves if they are sources of life and light, among other things. Or if, in reality, there is more confusion and suppression in them than anything else. If you saturate the root of your tree, my friends, with life and light, the branches will, over time, grow in a healthy, joyful, and life-sustaining manner. After a brief interlude of verses 6 through 9, concerning not John, the author of this gospel, but rather John the Baptist, verse 10 resumes this lofty, transcendent prologue to this gospel with a note of irony and sadness. This word, this word of light and life was in the world. And the world came into being through him, yet the world knew him not. Tragically, mournfully, he came to his own home and his own people received him not. But how could that be? How can that be? How can the created reject the creator? How can the clay reject the potter, the temporary, the permanent? Historically, we know the tale. Jesus' own hometown synagogue at Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. He was rejected into three primary towns in which he ministered, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. And when he attended Passover in Jerusalem, the record is painfully sufficient. Betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, falsely accused and convicted by Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Herod Antipas, and famously Pontius Pilate. Tortured, mocked, humiliated, nailed to a cross, left to die, bereft and alone. I'm always incredulous and mortified when I hear a news report about a son or a daughter who has killed their own parent. And yet that is exactly what the human race did to its creator. So again, in this new year, it behooves us to examine and ask ourselves, is there a way or are there ways that he comes to us? He has created us and yet we know him not that he's trying to come to his own and we accept him not if so the light is still there the light continues to shine in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it the tide begins to turn somewhat in verse 12 but, but, 
to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave what? I, I bet you were tempted to say, if you didn't see it on the screen, forgiveness of their sin or, or a peace which passes all understanding or some other common, comfortable, meek answer, the likes of which are always the first to roll off our tongues. But true though they may be, that is not the answer herein. Not in this text, but the answer rather is power. Power to become the children of God. We used to be reminded of that each and every week, weren't we? In the absolution part of the brief order of confession and forgiveness of sins, which began our traditional worship service for decades. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, He gives what? The power to become the children of God. Directly from John 1 verse 12 herein. It is the downfall of the historic mainline churches in America, I believe, and even more importantly, of our own discipleship. That what we most overlook, what we most neglect in our calling, our following of Jesus, is power. The Gospels teach us, and the book of Acts reaffirms that we, you and I, have power. Power to preach, teach, and proclaim boldly in the name of Jesus. Power to forgive sins or not, actually. The power of faith to move mountains and uproot sycamine trees and toss them into the sea. Power, according to Matthew 10, to heal the sick, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and yea, even raise the dead. Power, according to Luke 10, to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, ironically, and nothing shall hurt us. Power like Peter and Paul, flesh and blood folks like you and me, to walk on water. To heal people by only your shadow falling upon them. Or by having handkerchiefs and aprons, things that you have touched, being distributed to them so that they are healed. Power the likes of which Jesus described as not only doing the works he did, but actually doing even greater works than those Power, as the book of Acts describes it, to take this world and flip it upside down. Power, it says here, to become children of God. Notice that power not to be children of God, but to become children of God. Which means it's a journey. It's a process. So don't get flustered if you're not where you want to be or think you should be in your discipleship walk just yet. And when you become a child of God, that means not only do you have a loving, protective, heavenly parent, but also there's a DNA, a genetic connection. You have inherited traits from your heavenly father. We tend to forget this. We tend to dismiss it and disbelieve it because the world beats it out of us each and every day on a daily basis. But your primary identity is as a child of God. Which means God himself is your father and you have power. Yes, you have forgiveness of sins, but you also have power. Power to change and power to be a change agent for others who are hurting and grieving deeply. I think all of this is part of what verse 13 means. When referencing those who are born not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. This is not a natural perspective or reality, in other words. 
This is not due to blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man. This is a supernatural one due entirely to being born of God. This word of God, which makes all this possible, didn't remain heavenly, transcendent, removed, aloof, above the fray, distant from our predicament, no, but rather became incarnate, took on human flesh, or as verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt where? Here among us. He did that, my friends, to identify with us, to share our lot in life in order to redeem or save us from it. He knows what it's like to hunger, to thirst, to be famished. He knows what it's like to cry, to cry, to grieve, to mourn the loss of a friend. He knows what it's like to be rejected, to suffer, to be mocked, and to be taunted. He knows what it's like to battle the devil. He knows what it's like to die and breathe his last. What we receive from this divine word made human flesh in large measure is communicated in the remaining verses. Glory, grace, and truth in verse 14. Grace upon grace in verse 16. Grace and truth in verse 17. And the knowledge and the revelation of God in verse 18. I particularly like verse 16. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace presumably jesus is full of grace and he bestows freely of it apparently upon all i suspect the use of the word all here is intentional and serves as a corrective upon our human nature to appropriate grace for ourselves but not for everybody else to appropriate grace to ourselves, to those like us, but not to others unlike us or opposed to us. What we ourselves receive from God, namely grace, we can be loath to extend to our enemies. But here in verse 16, it says, all. I think all must include myself and that one person I can't stand right now i think all must include male and female rich and poor jew and gentile formerly educated and school dropouts catholic and protestant employed and unemployed black and white and latino and asian free and incarcerated straight and gay democrats republicans capitalists, socialists, communists, secularists, agnostics, and atheists, all means all, and we have all received. We have received from Christ fullness, according to verse 16. And the content, the substance of what we have received is grace upon grace. Aren't you glad, my friends, that you didn't receive grace just one time? Aren't you glad that you don't receive just one second chance in life? Aren't you glad that on those occasions when you have made a royal inveterate mess of your life, when you have been devoid of sound judgment, choosing the wrong path, the wrong people, the wrong everything, and when you have made your own bed of catastrophic consequences, 
that you did not receive judgment and condemnation, but rather grace. And not just grace, but you received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace seems to indicate that there's layers of grace, an inexhaustible supply. Your house has a foundation of grace, walls of grace, a roof of grace, windows of grace, doors of grace, shutters of grace, gutters of grace, downspouts of grace, a lawn of grace, and a fence of grace. That's what the psalmist meant when he said, My cup does what runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. How often? All the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. That's what Jesus meant in Luke's gospel when he said, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over is what it will be placed in your lap. In a world concerned with branches rather than roots, concerned with practical, relevant self-help rather than with overarching principles and virtues, nothing is more important than grace upon grace. Nothing more critical than grace upon grace. Nothing more significant than grace upon grace. Nothing more beneficial than grace upon grace. Nothing more necessary than grace upon grace. Nothing more essential than grace upon grace. Nothing more transformative than grace upon grace. Nothing more empowering than grace upon grace. Nothing more equipping than grace upon grace. Nothing more consequential than grace upon grace. So go ahead and make those New Year's resolutions. God willing, you succeed. But if and when you falter and you fail, there is grace upon grace. So give it your best shot this year of becoming a better parent, a better child, a better spouse or grandparent, a better mentor, life partner, manager of your money, steward of your time. God willing, you will succeed. But if and when you falter and fail, please know that there is grace upon grace. The starting point of your life's journey was grace. The ending point of your life's journey will be grace. What you receive is grace. What you give is grace. And every step of the way in between is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon 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 grace upon grace. Amen. Amen.